Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors creating fiction books that range from sci-fi and mystery to graphic novels. I'm Nora Peel, a reviewer at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Meg Little Riley, whose novel We Are Unprepared is published by Harlequin Mira, who's the sponsor of today's podcast. Meg, thanks for joining us today, and congratulations on the new novel. Thank you. I'm excited. So you spent several years working in the Obama administration, and what made you decide to shift gears from politics and administration and write this book? Well, it never felt quite as stark as that, the change. I've been sort of writing with less discipline my whole life. I studied it in college and it was something that I knew I always wanted to do. I know everybody kind of says that though. So um, at some point around my third year into the administration, it really struck me quite suddenly that I would never do it if I didn't just dive in. And although it wasn't a particularly convenient time to start writing a book, it was like I couldn't uh, wake up any longer having not written one. And so I just decided I had to wake up every morning at four o'clock and uh, write every day. I wrote other things for a while. I knew that I wasn't going to write anything worth someone reading without quite a bit of work put in first. So I wrote a lot um, on my own and I actually, and I got an agent after about a year of just sort of doing that with some earlier work. And at some point during that process, that's when I started mapping out this book and writing that. So I began and um, got to nearly the end while I was still working in the uh, White House budget office. So you clearly have a really strong professional background. I think you had worked for the Environmental Defense Fund before. Mm -hmm. So you had this background in environment and policy. Why did you decide to tackle issues? of climate change in a novel rather than going the nonfiction route? Uh, well, the real reason is because novels are what I read uh, and I and I love. I, I love the, the length and the structure and the feeling and pacing of novels. It was always going to be a novel for me. And also because the, the majority, there's a new Gallup poll out in May and we know now uh, across all party lines, the majority of people understand and believe in the climate science now. Uh, and have some sense of trepidation about it. But there's sort of something missing in um, our urgency to address it. And I think this is one of those issues. Hearts are going to be changed from cultural changes more than the facts. The hard facts are kind of out there, and they haven't really done the full job. And I do think that with storytelling, we can create a sort of immediacy and urgency through the lives of people who are really affected by this. So it never occurred to me, honestly, to write anything other than fiction because that's what I always wanted to write. But I also felt strongly that that a novel lends itself very well to telling the story of how climate change is here now in our lives. So yeah, so as we're talking today, Boston, where I think we both are, is Mm -hmm. in an extreme drought. There are volatile wildfires in California. There's been these historic floods in Louisiana. Where do you see your book fitting into this sort of national conversation that you mentioned about climate change and its effects? Well, the reason I chose to write about a storm is because... One of the problems with the idea of climate change is that it feels very distant most of the time. It feels slow and gradual and like something that happens far away. And natural disasters are the moment at which we have that proximity and urgency of climate change. Climate scientists now all readily acknowledge that the frequency and intensity of these natural disasters are indeed a result of climate change in one way or another. And 
it's all sort of at the back of our minds, I think, most of the time until there's a natural disaster or a drought or something something as urgent as that, which is why I decided to use a storm um, because that's what it all becomes. It, it's right there at the tip of our nose. And in fact, while I was writing it, living in D.C., we had this monster storm I think it was just as I was starting this book, uh, we, it, it was dubbed the uh, snowpocalypse at the time. And it really was an extraordinary storm for the mid-Atlantic. We got like, it was like three and a half feet of snow in three days. I mean, everything shut down. And it's particularly startling in a place where all of our elected officials spend most of their time and they don't lend a lot of credence to the issue of, of climate change until like, their Ubers can't take them to work <laughs> and the Metro stops working. And then all of a sudden there's more discussion about it. And so it's a strange reminder of how even the people who are driving climate policy, they, they see it most when it's right there in front of them. And that's what it feels like right now in this country. It's, it's so grim. It feels grim to even talk about this. My heart breaks for the, the folks, especially the flooding in Louisiana. So yeah, so one of the things I found interesting about the novel and its setting is that I think probably a few people would point to rural Vermont as really being at on the front lines of climate mm-hmm. change, um, not, not on the coast, not really prone to those sorts of wildfires or um, tornadoes or anything like that. So why did you choose to set your novel there? Well, I, and I think that is one of the spookier things about it is that it's a landlocked state that we, one would consider generally sort of safe from these kinds of things. Um, but I am a native Vermonter. Uh, so I always knew that the first book I had in me was going to be about our relationship to the natural world. That was always a sure thing for me. And Vermont is, it's a really special place to me. I grew up in the woods. I go back often and it shaped a lot of who I am. And I started writing this also as my husband and I were starting our own family. And I had a new kind of anxiety about what our children's relationship to the natural world would be. So in some ways, it's also a story about conservation as well, just sort of what the woods will look like when they're there. How comfortable will they feel in it? So it had to be Vermont because of my love for it. But it helps that I think it's a plausible storm in a place that isn't supposed to get storms like that. And in fact, when in, I think it was my final months in the White House was when Hurricane Irene struck. And I remember sitting at my desk at the White House and just choking back tears as I watched on CNN footage of my hometown, Brattleboro, with water flooding moving right through Main Street, going over the edges of this major creek and a bridge right through downtown. It flooded all these businesses. It felt like science fiction, but it wasn't. So your novel sets out two sort of starkly different responses to this this superstorm, which just gets called the storm, um, and other sorts of climate change induced threats. Can you outline for the listeners the differences between the sort of prepper camp and the more civic minded activists who you profile in the novel? Yeah. So soon after the news breaks that there'll be a series of storms, then ultimately we learn that it's going to be one real monster storm. The main couple in the book, what they're grappling with and what all of the sort of quirky rural characters in this book are grappling with is how to live with this looming fear. And everybody sort of turns to something else. Some people turn to their vices, others, new religious philosophy that's sweeping through. 
And then others become preppers, which is sort of a modern club of catastrophe preparedness enthusiasts. And in some ways, it comes down to a question of rugged individualism versus a kind of collective, a collective mentality. Uh, some people are at their best at moments like this and others uh, are at their very worst. And so it's really sort of a story about fear more than anything else. So, yeah, so this this looming crisis is playing out sort of on a macro scale and on, then on the community level, but also, as you mentioned, in the very personal lives of the couple who are at the center of your novel, Ash and Pia. Um, can you just describe them and their relationship? Yeah. So Ash and Pia are a 30-something couple. They were both uh, professionals in New York. They lived in Brooklyn. Um, they worked hard. They made a decent amount of money. And they, they had this sort of romantic romantic but well-intentioned notion that moving to Vermont would offer them a more authentic and a more somehow meaningful uh, way to live. It follows a trend that I think all of us are sort of familiar with this kind of uh, young back-to-the-land ideas, um, rejection of consumerism, stuff like that. And it all, like I said, it's all quite well-intentioned, but they don't really know what they're getting into. And in some ways, they're also sort of running from some fractures in their relationship. And they're not in Vermont long before the news of the storm breaks and the differences that felt perhaps minor or easier to ignore in their relationship, those fractures become sort of chasms in a way, and they're forced to kind of see each other at their most raw. And everyone is sort of because of the fear that's drawing harder lines around everyone. Uh, so it's also about a relationship trying to survive with intense and mounting stress. At the beginning of the novel, one of the sort of challenges that they're facing that ends up becoming a much bigger thing is, as you say, is they're realizing that they're going to have challenges with regard to fertility and conception. And mm -hmm. how did you envision this connection between their very personal concerns about their next generation and sort of the implications of the, the climate crisis that's bearing down on them and its implications for future generations? Yeah. I mean, I think for most young-ish people right now, it's hard to, to think about creating a new generation without considering whether that's a selfish act or a selfless one. It's a, it, I, I think it's an incredibly hopeful act. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but I'm not sure that it's not a selfish one. Uh, so it's this question of sort of what kind of earth are, and these are the things they talk about. I think more often in this relationship, the individual, uh, Ash and Pia, think about it quietly to themselves because um, they're both grappling with very, they, they have, they're look, thinking about it from pretty different paradigms. Um, and there's a strong argument to be made on either side, I think. And if you think that the world is ending either with one particular catastrophe or just in a sort of uh, <laughs> rapid decline from climate change, making babies doesn't really seem like a logical choice. Um, but this is ultimately a pretty hopeful story. Uh, I think it's clear that that's not, that's not my view of it, but it's an interesting question to ask. And I think that what not only the main character learns, but some of the other folks that he befriends in this town, I think everybody turns to a more communal way of conceiving their lives. And so mm -hmm. I think that um, 
the idea of children and next generations is for most people still a very hopeful and preferable option. But that's, that's the question of it. And since they're having trouble conceiving, it's not something that happens accidentally or mindlessly. It's a very intentional choice. Um, and in fact, with, with my first daughter, my husband and I, we had some trouble conceiving. And so we talked a lot of this stuff out and there's a lot more to it than I think either of us even initially thought when we just figured we were going to kind of jump into this parenthood thing. Yeah. Um, so you, you choose to tell the story in a first person narrative from Mm -hmm. Ash's point of view. Why did you choose this perspective? Was there anything particularly challenging about capturing his voice or his um, point of view? Um, I think because, because a lot of this story is internal, um, a lot of it is about internal turmoil. A first person seemed right to me. Um, the, the real reason that I chose to do it from a male perspective is that Ash and I have some things in common. Obviously he's from Vermont and the, the trail running and he's got sort of this almost supernatural, uh, kind of love and belief in the woods. And I relate to that. And I was, I was worried that if I made a character, this is probably just kind of a, uh, kind of a cowardly reason, but I was worried if I made a character that I had some things in common with, but that was not at all autobiographical. It, if, it, if she was female, it would be too obvious and, or the, the comparisons would be too, too easy. And then also I would be tempted to try to either write the opposite of me or it would end up being me. It somehow seemed easier to just create that distance with gender. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that the idea of starting a, a, a new family or the next generation as, you know, offering, you know, being a hopeful act, you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, likewise, I, I feel like your novel offers some hopeful notes near the ending. Um, you know, in the aftermath of the storm, Ash is reflecting on some potentially positive changes. Um, how, especially after having written this novel and sort of thought through this kind of apocalyptic event, how would you characterize your own outlook about climate change? Do you see any opportunities for hope or optimism? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that, that, that I am really encouraged by is that I think that for generations, for people younger than me, probably starting with millennials, um, I don't think there's much of a question of whether climate change exists. I think everybody, I I think we really are raising children who believe in it and care about it. And I also think that, and this is not just a function of, in fact, it's probably not a function at all of, of climate change. I think it's more a function of the economic collapse of 2008 and some of the more contemporary economic changes in society that I do think a lot of the sort of hyper-consumerism that people in their 30s and 40s grew up with, I don't think that's quite as appealing to younger generations um, since we've seen housing busts and the mortgage fraud scams. And I, I, I think the world has changed. And maybe, maybe this is all uh, unrealistically hopeful, but I do, I think part of what the main couple in this story reflects is it may be an unsophisticated and 
somewhat um, idealized notion that you could just sort of move to the woods and, and have a simpler start. But I think the idea that they're thinking differently about what adulthood looks like is something that is happening a lot more often. I think that's generally a good thing. And listen, that's a, it, it's, it's a, it's a privileged choice to make. It's mm-hmm. probably, um, it's very regionally specific. It's probably even racially specific. And all of those things are things that we need to have a discussion about as a society. But, um, it doesn't change the fact that it's a generally good thing. So did you imagine your novel serving as a sort of call to action for readers? Um, you know, it sounds like you envision hopefully changing people's mindsets or getting them to think about sort of the narrative of what's happening in, in a, a different way. But did you hope that the novel would spark them to do anything as a result of reading? I have to say, I'm skeptical of fiction that offers solutions and is mm-hmm. particularly prescriptive. I think that the great strength of good fiction, and when I say that, I mean like the, the writers that I read and love, is that we get to put ourselves in the shoes of other people and consider how we would act at moments like this, consider how we'd want the world to behave. So more than anything else, I just wanted this to contribute to what I hope is kind of a growing trend of fiction that puts our changing earth at the center of the story. I don't, I I don't think any one story is going to do a whole lot, but I think when it becomes a mainstream thing, I think people will change their minds in a lot of ways, but I believe I only mentioned the term climate change once in the whole novel. (laughs) This is not an overtly political story. It's definitely not a partisan story. It's kind of fun. If a little terrifying more than anything else, uh, I just wanted it to be an interesting and compelling tale. So you, you've mentioned your daughters a couple of times. Um, what sorts of things do you enjoy doing with them in nature? How have you managed to integrate an appreciation of and love of nature with, with your young family? You know, one of the things I do my very best to do is to try to just let them be like, let them get hurt. Let them get very dirty. There's a book called The Last Child in the Woods by a gentleman whose name escapes me at the moment. Uh, this is a uh, nonfiction. It's, it's, it's so spot on. And it's about how future generations are growing up with an appreciation for the idea of the environment, but with less of an opportunity to just be wild in it. It's the only place that's sort of uncivilized, unregulated by adults. And that's a pretty liberating experience for children who have every other aspects of their lives regulated by adults mm-hmm. to just sort of be free. And, and I mean, I, I grew up in this, in this world that we're all in. It takes a lot of work for me to just try to like hold back and let them climb a tree. I know they're going to fall out of, um, <laughs> But I really think that there's value in that. And again, this is a, a a privilege that there are a lot of kids in this country who won't ever have the experience in being in a, a truly wild place, not just a public park. And I think the, the book with the character of August, who's this young boy who I just love so much in the story, um, he sort of embodies all of the things I'm talking about right now. Um, and what he has, the woods give him something that all of the kind of terrible adults in his life don't. And he's sort of an aspirational character to me. He, he, he gets something um, that I wish more children in this country could. And so if there is a call to action, it's not in the book, but if I just make, <laughs> if I could make one uh, with this book, it's that 
we create more spaces like that for more kids who grew up in urban places, grew up in poor places, or just grew up feeling like, you know, our trails and parks aren't for them. Um, because it has historically been a very sort of white and upper middle class experience to go hiking in the woods. Uh, and that seems to me like a pretty profound environmental in- injustice. So you mentioned earlier that you always knew that your first novel would be about people's relationship to the natural world. Um, can you tell us a little bit before we go about what you're working on now? Yeah. So I, uh, I just finished my, my next book, which takes place in the foothills of Shenandoah, actually, which is another place that I love very much living in DC for 10 years. I spent a lot of time uh, hiking in the Shenandoah mountains um, and in all of the wonderful little towns uh, around there. Uh, it's nothing like this story, except that it has a very strong sense of place, which um, I, I would say is a common thread. And there is a, the the natural world is a, is is a sort of character in it um, in itself. It asks some some questions, some other questions about the intersection of the natural world and our consumer culture, things like that. Um, but. I would say that the similarities end there. It's a pretty different story. Um, so I'm in discussions with my publisher about it now, so I probably can't say much more about it, but I'm excited about it. <laughs> well, yeah, it sounds great. Thanks for giving us a glimpse. Well, Meg, thank you so much for joining us and best of luck with the book tour and the release of We Are Unprepared and with your next project. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening and please join us for the next PW LitCast.